Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just a heads up, this episode contains adult language and some violence, so take care while listening. We're on this, like, cliff bluff thing looking over, like, kind of like the east end of the train yard. Train yard up on the hill. Oh, see, there's the other train line. That's where Amtrak comes in. It's a warm night in Northern California, and I'm drinking beers on a hill with a hobo named Mike while he waits to hop a train to Kansas City. This train has been leaving since the 70s, um, and it hauls mail all the way to Chicago and, like, Kansas City, too. Um, so the same train has, leaves pretty much every day, like, at, like, 4 or 5 in the morning. I've caught it three times, and so here we are again. We're here pretty early, but we have nothing else to do. Like everyone else in America, I never paid much attention to the rails until someone I loved disappeared into them. And for the last 14 years, I've been in train yards with hobos and talked to hundreds of people like Mike, but the rails don't give up their secrets easily. You might hear hobo and picture an old bum in a boxcar, but there's more to train hopping than that. Every night in train yards all over America, people wait in the shadows, crouched behind bushes, scanning the tracks for freight cars to take them somewhere, anywhere but here. Riders use aliases like Jobo the Hobo, Long-Haired Donnie, and Tuck Don't Give a Fuck to make themselves untraceable. And there's a pretty good chance they're lying to you when they tell you where they're going. So getting to hang out with Mike Brody, a guy using his real name, was a big event. Can see it from here. Basically, yeah, we kind of can yeah. see it. I appreciate that impulse to escape. I've thought about it ever since she left, but I'm not brave enough to do it. So Mike's agreed to let me tag along and get a first-hand look at what it's like to live on the rails. Tonight, Mike's getting ready to hop out of town, and he's looking for a very specific kind of train car. I want a pig with wings. It's a bunch of train cars that have truck chassis on top of them. So if you look at trucks on the highways, you see these big, long plastic wings, or they're called skirts. But it's like a modern-day boxcar. 
you just get behind the skirt or the wing and you can't be seen. So you're under the trailer behind a wall. So pig with wings, it's ideal. Do you um, sit up much? You could sit up and lay down, but you can't stand, you know, because you're under a truck, tra- truck trailer. Right. Yeah. Why would anyone decide, oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do with the next 24 hours of my life. I'm going to lay underneath a truck chassis and piss into the wind. And that's how I'm getting to Kansas City, even if I have no reason to go there. But to Mike Brody and to thousands of train hoppers, this is a great idea. So does your body get a little sto- sore, a little stiff? Yeah, you get really stiff and sore. It gets pretty old. But every time the train stops or sometimes you just hop down and stretch your legs, it's worth it because you, you can just haul ass cross country. It's kind of shadowed under the car. So anyone looking for you can't really see you because it's like bright outside. It's ideal. We live our lives under surveillance, monitored, data harvested, with algorithms scanning our phone calls. And yet here's a person flying across the country undetected on a pig with wings. When you go into a reporting assignment, you open a door, and you better open your mind, because you're going to see a lot of things you didn't expect. And as soon as I started looking into the railroads, I began to see them as a secret city rumbling through all of our lives. Its citizens are always on the move, here and gone. They slide through the world on locomotive beasts so enormous we rarely notice who's hiding in the cracks. But I'm getting way ahead of myself here. I have to take you back to the very beginning, the whole reason I ended up in this dangerous place. It all started the day my daughter Ruby ran off to hop trains. This is the story of what I found when I followed Ruby into the city of the rail. I'm Dedal Morton. Before I started sneaking into rail yards, traveling to meet famous hobos, tracking down rail cops, before I ever met Mike Brody on that hillside, I was a journalist. I supported my daughter Ruby and her brother Ben working at newspapers and magazines. I'd raised them mostly in Santa Monica, where I worked for People magazine. But I got tired of reporting on celebrities, and we needed a change. When I got a fat advance from my first book, The Single Mom Effect, I moved back home to Oakland in Triumph, happy to be where I grew up, and closer to Ben, who was in college at Berkeley. When we moved, Ruby was a junior in high school, and she was cool, but she's always been the coolest person I knew. I'd tell my friends that even when she was in elementary school. There was something rich and deep going on behind her bright blue eyes, a hidden aspect of her that always left you wanting more. When we moved to Oakland, I rented the nicest apartment I've ever had, a three-bedroom with big windows overlooking the gleaming blue of Lake Merritt. I had an open-door policy. Anyone could drop by the house for dinner. And I was amazed by how quickly Ruby collected a social circle in her new school. We started having guests the second week of the semester. At first, her guests were school friends, study buddies. It didn't take long for that to change. By spring, she started a punk band with a friend, and soon they were booking shows at Gilman, the Berkeley club where Green Day got its start. They began performing at shows in backyards and local music festivals. 
And by the midpoint of her senior year, her guests were older, scruffier, hungrier, and a little feral. And some of them hopped trains. Ruby's train friends were great dinner guests, but entertaining as they were, they left me with questions, ones that I'd ask every writer I met. Why would you choose to live this way? Why would you choose to get your food out of a dumpster? Why would you choose to live in an illegal place where you could get arrested at any moment? Because we want to, <laughs> and we can. It goes way beyond that. I think it's disgusting that there's waste everywhere, and I want to yeah. use it. I don't want to pay for it. I don't want to have to work for it. And I want to be free. <laughs> That's Ruby's friend, Aaron. Their description of radical freedom intrigued me. But I also wanted to hear stories of the beauty you can only see from a train. Another friend, Momo, described it well. We were traveling together. We went through this period where everybody we encountered kept asking us why we were doing what we were doing. And then we hopped a train and we were riding through Montana. And you could see every star in the sky. It was like me and my boyfriend and our dogs. And we're eating food and we're drinking a beer and we're looking at every single star in the sky. And it's like quiet and peaceful and, and open and beautiful. And we're like, oh, this is why we do what we do. <laughs> right here. Yeah. I imagine myself alongside Momo in that boxcar, weightless. And when my dinner guests were telling train stories, I'd look across the table at Ruby, who was gazing at the lake. I saw a young girl getting swept up in the same romance I was, but she wasn't daydreaming. She was making plans. But my journey into the city of the rails was still a long way off from those dinner table conversations. The day my years-long obsession with the rails really begins is Ruby's high school graduation. Three weeks from graduation, Ruby seems sullen and withdrawn in the car on the way to school. As we pulled up in front of the entrance, she told me she was going to drop out. High school meant nothing to her, and she could always get her GED. I was having none of that. I rose up in my full, listen, young lady, fury, and told her, you're graduating if I have to drag you across that stage. That seemed to work. We carried on. Over the next three weeks, we stopped talking about dropping out and started planning for graduation. We chose a beautifully tailored sewing pattern for her graduation dress. At the fabric store, we picked out a deep pink silk for it, and Ruby got a great haircut. The whole time, she was cheerful, cooperative, even a little excited. The big day came, and I was so proud. Ruby's four years of high school, well, high schools, she'd been to six different ones, had been rocky. But she was graduating. In a tiny academic setting, she thrived. Plus, Ruby had a scholarship to a great school, the California College of Arts. The day was sunny and warm as we took our seats in the courtyard of a church, decorated with bunting and flowers. The dozen graduates clustered together around the podium. I waved to a bunch of Ruby's hobo friends sitting in the back. They cleaned up nice. The men wore fedoras and the women had on dresses. It was great they'd come to celebrate with Ruby. The whole place was buzzing as graduates came to the podium to thank their parents and the school. When Ruby approached the mic, I saw she had her ukulele in hand. She never told me she was going to sing.
I looked around at the other parents as Ruby sang. So many of them had tears in their eyes, just as everyone in my family did. Ruby had done it. Whatever our weaknesses as a family, we'd worked hard together to get to this moment. What? A fool of everyone? What was this song about? While Ruby got hugs from her friends, the family wandered to the reception hall. We got our flutes of champagne and attacked the appetizer spread. We stood eating at a tall table, waiting for Ruby to join us. It seemed like she was taking an awfully long time. I asked Ben to look for her. He came back incredulous. Ruby was gone. What did he mean, gone? Ben had looked in the church, around the courtyard. Ruby wasn't even in the parking lot. So I called her. But I got her voicemail. Pretty rude that she left graduation without saying goodbye. Maybe she was at a friend's house and wasn't picking up her phone. Boy, was she going to hear about it when she got home. The next day, I realized she wasn't coming home. Maybe she really was gone, and I had no idea where she was. That whole time we were sewing her dress and talking about what her college dorm room would look like, she was planning her escape. On graduation day, she'd made a real drop-the-mic departure. She had made a fool of everyone, and I was first on that list. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. 
Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Ruby had made a fool of everyone. While we were getting ready for her graduation, she was planning to ditch us. She even wrote a song about it. Then she stepped from the podium at her high school graduation straight to the road with no clues about where she was headed. I bet she didn't see it that way. She just turned 18 and she didn't have to answer to any of us anymore. But where was she? Where had she run off to? I kept trying her phone. Ruby wasn't answering, so I spent a few days trying to get a hold of her friends, but the information I got was hardly solid. Some said Ruby was road-tripping east. Others said she was hitching north to Roseville, a town with a major train yard a few hours away. My money was on Roseville. So I began my search like I was launching an investigation. I tacked a map of the United States on my office wall and got colored pushpins to chart her travels, and I kept a notebook by the phone. Running away like she did was a hostile act, but she'd call sooner or later. She would miss her mom. But whatever I did to prepare, I couldn't just sit there. The clues to where she was, who she was with, and how she was surviving definitely were not in my house. I knew I had to get up from the dining room table and out into the train yard to find train riders who would talk to me. It was the only way to find out more. The other thing that was bugging me was, who is she? Of all the things to do after graduation, she chose trains. What was the allure? In my first phone call with Mike Brody, before we ended up on that hillside looking for a pig with wings, I asked him that question I was asking everyone. Why live this way? It's about youth. It's it's just absurd that that young people in this country, like we live in a country with so much wealth and privilege, and to like essentially choose to live so subsistently and like in poverty Mm -hmm. and explore the country that way and fuck up your life sometimes and ride trains to do that is it's fascinating there is a self-righteousness where a lot of it ties into radical ideologies and people are just like it's like a protest you know people riding trains out of protest they're protesting you know this american way of life it's a lot of a lot of lost young people who think like riding trains is the answer to like, you know, like Did Ruby feel lost? Had she been faking it around our dinner table? Mike had been riding for years, chronicling the lives of young people who took to the rails, his fellow travelers. If there was such a thing as a well-known hobo, Mike was it. I first came across Mike at an art exhibit in San Francisco. The gallery featured photos Mike had taken over a decade of hopping trains. There was a book, too, A Period of Juvenile Prosperity, and I bought a copy. I pored over it in the days after Ruby left. His work helped me visualize the risks she was taking. Images of young people in boxcars, sleeping on filthy mattresses, eating from garbage dumps, or getting arrested. But also in motion, running alongside a moving train, trying to hop on. After all that time on the rails, Mike knew a lot. He has an insider's knowledge, but he saw that life for what it was. 
Maybe Mike could help me see this world clearly. And when he and I spoke, Mike put Ruby and me in context. There were other parents like me. So many people, they have assets and and parents that love them and homes, safe homes, you know, but they don't care. They don't want this society. They don't want this life. They go off and find it on their own. Mike is familiar with his impulse. He's lived many lives on and off the rails. He's been married and owned a home. He's even had a railroad job working as a diesel mechanic. And when all that broke apart, Mike started traveling again. Mike was on the road when we spoke, and he said he'd swing by for a visit. This was my chance to get more of my questions answered, so I was eager. And I was lucky Mike would be passing by. All my belongings will be on me because I'll be coming from Ukiah with all my shit. Tuesday should work. It might end up being later in the day. If so, we need to spend time together, though. So can I stay at your place if need be or something? Okay. But, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, hi, for an hour. It needs to be deep, you know. Or I'll come back later because I I really live anywhere now. Mike and I had a plan. But as any hobo will tell you, shit happens. Trains surprise you. So I didn't see him that Tuesday or the Tuesday after that or the Tuesday after that. In fact, I didn't see him for another five months. But when he did finally arrive, he spent two days with me. Mike answered every question I had, and he let me tag along with him and a friend as they hopped back out of town. We climbed up to the top of the hill, with San Francisco glittering in the distance across the bay. Mike pulled out some beers from his pack and handed them around as we settled in on the hillside. We should just come up here here. here and chill here, huh? Yeah. Mike's book made me think hopping a train was a frenzy. One of his photos was of a guy trying to catch up to a train, running with a heavy pack and carrying a guitar. Off in the distance behind him was another guy really hoofing it. But on the hill, it's peaceful. We're just relaxing while Mike waits for a pig with wings. And despite being a seasoned hobo, he doesn't look how you might expect. No faded car hearts and thrift store boots. And he certainly isn't dressed like someone about to hide under a truck trailer. Describe your outfit so that we know. I'm wearing... All Gucci clothes. And I'm about to hop freight trains. These are like these Gucci dress boots that are black leather with zippers on the side. These are like wool pants with like zippers on the front. More of like a fashionable detail. Got Gucci socks. This Gucci coat, which really isn't that practical or warm. A silk shirt that I have buttoned up. Uh, my glasses are Gucci. It's pretty much I went all out. I got as many Gucci items as I possibly could. Uh, Why? I don't know, really. I got sick of being dirty and filthy, and I had some money, and I got divorced, and maybe I was going through some midlife fashion crisis, and I was like, I'm going to buy Gucci clothes and hop trains. <laughs> I know, but like, don't you think that a lot of train hoppers going to be like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, but for the most part, people have been into it. Which people? Did other hobos take a look at Mike's $3,000 designer wear and think, oh, there's a guy who knows how to ride? I mean, it's absurd to ride in Gucci. It's uncomfortable. He's going to freeze. But Mike says one of the things he likes about train riding is how much he suffers. It makes you really appreciate these other more mundane, simple aspects of life. Using a clean bathroom or sleeping in a nice hotel or just, you know, having a nice warm meal or It just helps you appreciate just the simple things in life when you're like stuck on this massive freight train going through the elements, you know. As exciting as it is to catch that train that you want or you think you want, it's just as exciting to get the fuck off of it because you've been on too long. 
So like after like 12, 24 hours, you're like, okay, are we there yet? I'm done. I'm ready to get back to civilization. And by that time, you're usually out of water and food and you're just like, want to bathe. A couple months ago, I went from Reno to Amarillo via Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I did not know, but I, it was, I went through a snowstorm. When you have like wind chill, like whipping over your whole sleeping bag for hours and hours and hours, like all your body heat starts to go away. And you start, like I had my boots on, I had all my gear, my insulated coveralls, all my clothes, my boots, thick socks, everything in the sleeping bag. And if your body is stagnant for long enough on metal, it'll just suck all that energy out of you. But that's like how it is. Uh, I'd kind of just like to suffer. Okay, here's another way this world doesn't sound like Ruby. In my 18 years with her, she is not someone who likes to suffer. She likes it cozy, or so I thought. But suffering was part of it. In this misery, you're definitely living in the moment, very aware of every breath you take. The risks that train hoppers take are what make the ride so special. It costs a lot to get into the city of the rails. That's why for riders, being called a hobo isn't a slur or a synonym for homeless. It's an honor. I think with anything you do, trades or activities, you gotta kind of like do it really hard for like 10 years before you call yourself like a carpenter or a mechanic or something. Right. It's a sense of mastery. Yeah, it's the same thing with train riding. Like, I, I wouldn't consider, say, oh, I'm a hobo or a train rider or whatever, or a tramp until I did it for a long time. Mm -hmm. So like, it was like probably a year or two ago, I was like, oh, I am this and that's okay. I, I went through all these experiences thousands and thousands of miles riding trains and met all these people and did all this stuff it's okay to throw a label there and say oh I'm this with Mike I saw my idea of hobos as nothing but drunks and criminals was wrong the people Ruby was traveling with chose this life they had a culture and a code of honor I never expected I thought that this world would be brutal it had to be if you're throwing your body on a train. But it was more than that. It was also tender and reflective. A different kind of cozy. Maybe it was the frogs. You don't hear that kind of sound in most of uh, Northern California, like the cities where I live. You never hear this like chirping of the frogs. What's cool about waiting for trains sometimes what passes the time is just like kind of learning to be your own best friend or just being amused by simple things like listening to frogs listening to horns off in the distance just appreciating those simple little pieces Mike's been working on being his own best friend since he took to the rails at 17 he was a bored teenager in Pensacola, Florida who came alive when he started riding with a Polaroid camera a friend gave him the camera wasn't the point at first he just needed to get the hell out of Pensacola I was just a bored, like a bored young person. I knew the train would take me somewhere that was more interesting than like rotting in Pensacola, Florida, with no direction, with no guidance, with no, you know, no interest, no skill. I had no real skills, no trade skills, no dad. He'd be like, "Oh, you should, you know, work on cars. Here's how you change to fix a head gasket. You know, who do go do this?" There was no direction, so I had to direct myself, and a train was a symbol of that. Like oh, it's going there, over there to that town, and maybe there'll be something there. Even though there's not really ever anything anywhere, you're just kind of going around in circles. But Ruby had a direction, when I thought worked for her. Did she think art school was just going around in circles? Or maybe she just didn't want to listen to anyone. 
Was the Ruby who fled different than the way I knew her? What did I know about this person who'd spent her whole life with me? When Mike talked about how suffering was part of it, I had to know more. Even if it was going to scare the hell out of me. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think most Americans agree that it's our fundamental right, protected in the Constitution, to say, you know what, I'm sick of this shit. I've acted on those words a time or two myself. But to leave outright, leave it all behind, to let everyone else figure out why you changed your number, that takes guts. So maybe it was inevitable that, as I continued digging for information about Ruby's world, I found myself reading about hobos throughout history. 
I wanted to understand what she could have been thinking, and I started to see she had company. There's a long line of Americans who have used the rails to escape the catastrophe of their lives, but catastrophe and the railroads go hand in hand. So much of our language for disasters has its roots in railroading, like getting off track, a runaway train, or a project getting derailed. The word for forcing something through, without concern for others, is railroaded. My name's Richard White, and I'm a historian. I'm now an emeritus historian. I taught at Stanford University, among other places. And I've concentrated on the American West. He's being modest. Richard White won the MacArthur Genius Award for his lifetime of original research into the forces that shape the American West. He used that grant money to write a definitive history of the rails. White called his book Railroaded, and that title attracted me in those weeks after Ruby left, when I wanted to know everything I could about this world she entered. Railroaded opened my eyes to the real history of the rails. Most histories tell the building of the railroads as a heroic tale, men of vision and action taming the West as they tie the continent together with steel. But Railroaded is about the scoundrels and liars who built the rails, the corrupt corporate culture they created, and how they got won over on the American people. This history is nothing like the history we were taught in school. I found that out from my very first question when I sat down to interview Richard White. I think it's hard for um, modern people to imagine what the West was like. You know, it was just a vast open space, was it not? No, it was not a vast open space. It was Indian country, as it was called at the time. All of the West is inhabited. It's inhabited by Native peoples. The land that's being given away did not actually belong to the United States. There have not been treaties for much of this land. The United States is subsidizing railroads by giving away other people's country. Then they will have treaties with the Indians, which will get title to the land to give to the railroads. But the United States is giving away Indian country um, to private corporations. And this sets up what is, makes the railroads into the, one of the greatest tools for um, eradicating native lands in the western United States. It really is never covered as that story very much, is it? No, no. It's, it's usually covered as the, the country is empty, the railroad populates it. It doesn't populate it. It replaces one population with another. What railroaded meant in the 1800s was that the railroads laid track independent of the consequences over sacred native lands across private property without asking anyone's permission. Richard White estimates that if you combined all the land the United States gave to the railroads, it'd be the size of Alaska. Everywhere you look in history, you find people getting railroaded. With little regulation from the government, the railroads got to play by their own rules. If they were willing to allow your competitor lower rates than they were willing to allow you, you were out of business. The railroads picked winners and losers, and Americans in the 19th century hated it. The other thing Americans hated was the huge influence railroads had on politicians. Take lobbying, invented by the railroads. During the Civil War in 1862, Lincoln signed the Transcontinental Railway Act. And why would he do something like that when the country was bankrupt? Most people don't know that Lincoln was a railroad lawyer before he was a president, and he saw the railroads as a way to unite the country from coast to coast. So stuffed into the Railway Act, and many bills thereafter, were massive construction subsidies, government-backed bonds, and miles and miles of free land. The railroads were booming after the war ended. Everybody wanted their own railroad, and that's where the lobbyists come in. This is a time you have to imagine the federal government is incredibly small. Congressmen do not have staff. 
They very rarely have even much office space. So a lot of their work is going to be done in public. That's what lobbyists do for their profit. Where did this public work happen? Wherever the congressmen were. When they traveled to Washington, D.C., they all stayed at the same hotel, the Willard. And they're called lobbyists because they hang around the lobby. Um, They hang around the lobby of the Willard Hotel, and they hang around the lobby in Congress. So the railroad sent their men to the Willard Hotel carrying literal sacks of cash. Their goal was to persuade congressmen to pass the bills that would subsidize railroad construction. You would see tons of letters from congressmen, senators, even Supreme Court justices, asking for free passes on railroads so they could go back and forth. The free pass became a kind of currency. There were congressmen who would give receipts for bribes. It goes without saying. When you have to bribe people to offer them $100, $200, $500 for a vote, that means the system's breaking down. Seems to me like the system is just getting started. And this kind of corruption wasn't limited to congressional bribes. Railroad companies created a lot of the financial dodges and shell games that corporations employ to this day. So railroads show you how it's done. They show you how to raise capital, set up management, operate things on a very, very large scale. And also, they show you how to cheat. That system, created by the railroads, is still shaping our day-to-day. One that chooses winners and losers. It gives most of us very few rewards for showing up and doing as we're told. Mostly it favors those who cheat. With a system this corrupt, how can you ever think your hard work will be rewarded? It's rigged against you, unapologetically. If you look at America this way, it's easy to understand why Mike Brody says, you're just kind of going around in circles. Listening to him, again, I felt the pointlessness of everyday striving. That's why this story of a young man in Texas stuck with me. The story of a guy who went on the rails because he got promoted. When he quit junior college, Pizza Hut hired him as a delivery guy. When they offered him an assistant manager's job, his family started celebrating. He was on his way, bright horizons. They bought him a used car and rented him his own place. But he didn't spend many nights at that apartment and abandoned his car near the rail yard. The idea of working his way up the chain at Pizza Hut put him on the next train to New Orleans. I think I'm starting to get it. There's got to be something better than this. And when you get the urge to go, you just got to go. And like Ruby, there's no time to say goodbye. Momo, who told me about seeing all the stars in the sky from a boxcar, described how determined she was to get out of town. When the woman who was going to teach her how to ride trains didn't show, Momo decided she'd give it a try on her own. And the train stops, so I just got on it. Which is stupid, because I rode suicide. Like, the, it's like 48 containers, but it's a big hole in the middle. Riding suicide is hobo speak for riding an empty frame that normally holds a shipping container. And there's just like a little corner that you can like stand on. Most of those frames have floors, but when they don't, you're riding in the corner of a big rectangle with tracks flying by a few feet underneath. Riders sit with their backs at the corner, left leg on one beam, right leg on the other, open track rushing below them the entire ride. That seemed like the craziest fucking thing in the world. Plus, in the middle of this mayhem, Momo took a nap. I like sat in the corner and put my sleeping bag over me and like hooked my arm through the thing and I was like... And then I woke up and my sleeping bag was all flapping and I was like, what the fuck, I could die. <laughs> If Momo had moved in her sleep, she would have fallen into the tracks. Riding the rails was insane. 
It was violent, unpredictable, and dangerous beyond belief. So what drew Ruby here? It couldn't be Mike's need to suffer. It certainly wasn't thrill-seeking. She would hate writing suicide. It had to be something else. Ruby's friend Erin showed me what that could be. When everything is like a group decision, whether you're with like two people that you don't know very well, or like even someone you've known for years, you will get to know so much better when everything you're doing is like for survival. I mean, even just like a snowstorm, like trying to keep each other alive, like going through things like that, those make you like bonded for life. That's like absolute freedom. And that's like what we're all striving for is nobody telling us what to do. Ruby could go where she wanted, whenever she wanted, with whomever came along. And they'd figure out together where to sleep, what to eat, and where to go next. This kind of freedom and friendship could be what was drawing Ruby in. Guess it was no longer mine to judge, but I still wanted to find out. Mike showed me being a hobo was an actual goal, to be truly free. But hobos like Momo are paying the price for that freedom, paying the price for not being the Pizza Hut manager. After her first ride, Momo ended up in San Diego, where some Marines didn't like the way she and her friends looked. I was on the payphone talking to my grandma, and these dudes came out, and they were like, you can't sit there on the public bench on the sidewalk. Yes, I can, you know? And they're like, no, get up, hippie. They put me in an arm One guy had me on the ground, like face down. He was choking me, and this other dude had my arm twisted. He was trying to break it with his hand, and I was just like so pissed off. I was like spitting in his face. Somebody else like dropped their knee, and it broke my humerus and shattered my elbow. I had a surgery. That was my introduction to the road. It was like, everything's going to suck, and everybody hates you. <laughs> But after getting out of the hospital, with her arm held together with pins, she went right back on the rails. And you pressed on, because I was into it. <laughs> I was into it at that point. I was like, cool, we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. And people would always be like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing what you're doing? And I'm like, and I'm like so I don't have to do what you do. And they're like, oh. I do what I do, so I don't have to do what you do. Okay, don't do what I do. I don't want to do it anymore either. All those years of showing up on time, taking late meetings, for what? A lifetime of striving left me flat broke. So why was I trying to make Ruby do what I had done? Because it was what I knew, but that was about to change. After Ruby left, I was no longer such a good citizen. I didn't see the point when my daughter's life was at risk. I spent more and more of my time researching trains and reading books about hobos. I wasn't spending as much time as I should writing the single mom effect. When I blew past the deadline, I'd already spent most of my advance. I was putting everything on credit cards and watching my debt grow. Hearing stories of Momo writing suicide and Mike Brody suffering through a snowstorm made me understand that none of the normal parenting moves would get Ruby home. I couldn't take away her allowance or ground her. I couldn't even get her on the phone. All I could do was hope for a call and listen for clues about where she was. I got the sense that I was in a race against time. Anything could happen out there. The longer Ruby was gone, the bigger the chance was she'd never make it back. But it wasn't just about where she was or what she faced, but who she was. 
That's what kept me searching, to find the person who lived with me all her life and yet remained hidden from me. This search for her led me to the gang-infested streets of Colton, California, squats in New Orleans, even mountains along the Mexican border. And along the way, I started rethinking everything I thought I knew about being a mom, about our shared history, and about the quote-unquote American dream. I heard Ruby might have gone to Roseville, which meant I knew exactly where I was going next. Roseville is a real working yard where trains come in and out every hour. That's where the dangers are, and that's what I wanted to see. It's, it's dangerous if you're just wandering around and you can't hear what's going on. You have nothing that you can go on. It's just completely out of the blue, things are just gonna happen. Little did I know that when I tried to follow Ruby, I'd become entangled in the story of the rails. The fun thing about the railroad is that there's a finger on the pulse of like the nation that we have that a lot of people don't. You know, cameras aren't going to see underneath here, drones aren't going to see underneath here, and you can quickly jump onto a train that's safe. There's all this brotherhood talk, and it's easily to get wrapped up into this whole fucking cowboy movie that you're a part of every night. That's next time on City of the Rails. hosted by me, Danelle Morton, and developed in partnership between Flip Turn Studios and iHeart Podcasts. At iHeart, our team is executive producer and showrunner Julian Weller, senior producer and editing master Abu Zafar, and our excellent producers Emily Marinoff, Sheena Ozaki, and Zoe Denkla, who survived hours and hours coaching me how to speak, with production support from Marcy DePina. Original music every episode by Aaron Kaufman. Our theme music is Wayfaring Stranger, performed by Profane Sass. Thanks to Scott Michaud at Flail Records. Our logo is by Lucy Quintanilla and uses a photograph by Mike Brody. Mike, if you're listening, text or email me. Your phone number doesn't work anymore. Our executive producer at Flipturn is Mark Healy. And at iHeart, thanks to Nikki Etor and Beth Ann Macaluso. We'll be back with Roseville, California on the City of the Rails. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. 
David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.